I am tired of people saying there is not opportunity out there. Opportunities for jobs, businesses, etc., are all around you. Over a hundred billion people have ever lived on this earth, and somehow there are still so many unsolved questions. I found it to be a good source of humility. This is just the most amazing rabbit hole if you really want to think through lifelong missions. <laughs> this I would I would classify as both a good and a bad idea. Another one that I like from 1976, which I know we have the technology for, and I would love if someone built this. That might be the worst <laughs> idea that I've ever heard. Every single one of these ideas, when they were first published, felt like the kind of thing that would never be built. Well, it didn't just sound like science fiction, actually was science fiction. This is just like the rabbit hole of rabbit holes. So many questions, so few answers. <laughs> so little time. Bienvenido al podcast de la mierda que no se aprende en la escuela. Mi nombre es Calvin Roser. <laughs> what is this? Oh, oh. Welcome back to the Shit You Don't Learn in School podcast. This is Calvin Rosser. Did you just have a glitch? <laughs> no, sorry, sorry. <laughs> okay. And this is Steph Smith. And today we are going to be talking about how opportunity is everywhere. Before we jump in, quick reminder, because this episode does touch on business, this episode is not affiliated with my work at ACCZ and, of course, is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security. For more details, please see ACCZ.com slash disclosures. All right, let's jump in. So, Steph, about a year ago, we released our first segment of Opportunity is Everywhere, and the idea of that was to share business ideas, but really just a frame of thinking about the world and going about your daily life to see that opportunities for jobs, businesses, et cetera, are all around you. And I think that comes from paying attention. This segment is a return of that one, though I think we want to do it differently today based on some inspiration that you've had. Yes. So in our previous episode, there was really this learning, this lesson that you can draw inspiration from anywhere from your daily walk, from the people you run into at a cafe. And that is all true. But there is this beautiful thing that exists that we all have access to called the internet. And on the internet, people have built tools, they've built databases, so that you can actually not just observe the things that happen to hit you, but look at the things that people are already sharing, that other people are upvoting. And really, you just get the opportunity to see all of this signal amongst the noise all around you. And so there are four tools or resources that we're going to go through today that actually help you surface a bunch of great ideas. It also surfaces a bunch of bad ideas. So you need to vet some of this yourself. But I really wanted to share these tools because I am tired of people saying there is not opportunity out there. And I wanted to show that there is actually so much opportunity and so many resources to help you find whatever you want to do. Okay, well, where should we get started? Well, why don't we just give a quick sneak peek into the four resources? So the first one is a way to comb Twitter to search it and surface ideas that people are asking for. The second is a newsletter called Patent Drop. So this is a newsletter that surfaces all of the patents that these large companies like Amazon or Google or JP Morgan are filing, which gives you an idea of 
a company with resources is paying attention to something and they want to get ahead of it by filing a patent. So it gives you a little bit of a peek into what they care about and what may be coming. The third tool is something called the Not Boring Sci-Fi Idea Bank, which is this huge database of different ideas that have been found in science fiction books for centuries. And the last thing is a Wikipedia page of unsolved questions. So over a hundred billion people have ever lived on this earth. And somehow there are still so many unsolved questions, so many things that these 100 billion people have just not been able to figure out. And this is just the most amazing rabbit hole. If you really want to think through like lifelong missions, <laughs> this this is a, a great place to start. Well, why don't we start with Twitter and how the heck do we find these good ideas on Twitter? Yeah. So obviously Twitter has an algorithm and it'll show you a bunch of things that it decides for you, but it also has a search bar and the search bar has functionality that I think a lot of people don't either know about or use. And one of the query modifiers you can use is this thing where you just write min underscore faves and then colon a number. And what that does is it only surfaces tweets that have a certain number of likes. So that number could be a hundred, it could be a thousand. And you can pair that with a phrase in quotations. And if we're specifically looking for things that people are asking for, some of the queries that I encourage people to use are requests for product, someone please build, I'd pay a lot of money for, why doesn't this exist? And then you can also just be really prescriptive and write something like business idea. And what this will do is it'll surface all of the tweets in the past that included these phrases, like someone please build this, which again is someone literally saying, I want this to exist. Or in another case, I'd pay a lot of money for this. And again, when you pair that with the minimum likes, that's like a vetted query of not only does someone want this, but a bunch of other people are saying this is interesting. So we each actually experimented with each of these resources or tools or hacks, and we each came up with a few different ideas based on that. So Cal, first, what do you think of this approach? And then also, what'd you come up with? Yeah, before sharing my thoughts, we'll include the queries in the show notes so that you can just copy and paste them into Twitter if you want to try it out for yourself. But in terms of the approach, I think it's smart in the same way that looking at Google search data can reveal what they really care about. So if you're looking for ideas for articles to write and you want to solve people's problems, you can actually look what they're searching for on Google. It's like the most intimate way to understand people and it it's done at scale. So it's interesting. And Twitter's the same. People are posting all the time. They're putting their thoughts and then other people are sharing comments, likes, et cetera, on, on what they like. So this is just like this big wide pool of things where I think you could search it in a like so many different ways, but your approach is seems pretty sensible for business ideas. My only modification would be I don't know if you should do the min faves. Like you can actually go look at ideas that were liked by two people. And I'm not sure that the favorite ideas necessarily mean that they're ideas that more people want, or if they're just coming from larger accounts. I mean, sometimes it's both or one of those things. Either way, let me share my faves. The first, <laughs> the first of which are some trolls. <laughs> so, <laughs> which by the not- way, I think you're right that 
a bunch of the ones that came up when you put them in faves are hilarious because I think they just went viral and people are like, this is either ridiculous or something that resonates, but maybe isn't the best business idea, but Mm -hmm. let's hear it. Okay. The first one is business idea, a quality airline. (laughs) Business idea, a bank that doesn't gamble with customer deposits. (laughs) Billion dollar business idea, a crypto exchange that doesn't commit fraud. (laughs) Okay. So those are some spoofy ones. Um, I want to talk about some of the good ones too, but actually, as you were speaking about the methodology, one idea that came to mind for me is you could actually probably localize some of these searches. So if you wanted to see, you know, what people in Austin may want, you could, you could add, uh, you know, Austin or some other city to the search. And I actually saw that for some of these, like someone asked for like a wet and wild theme park in Nairobi or something like that. So I, I don't know, there's going to be some local search data as well. If you want to build that type of business. Before you do your good ones, can I share like two hilarious ones as well? Yeah. Okay. So one of them was request for product, San Francisco, but always 73 degrees, which I'm like, okay, yes, good idea. Hard to do. Um, Another one was request for product, coach European founders to communicate with the self-confidence of a US fresh out of college bro. (laughs) (laughs) And then one of them just reminded me of you. It was just this this person who was like, I'd pay a lot of money for a pillow that doesn't result in 24-7 neck pain. I've made my way through like eight in the last three years. And I was like, is this is this Calvin? No, it is Matt Perino, but sounds very familiar. Well, after all my searching for pillows, I did find one that is good and I can share that as well. And it ended up not being an expensive one, which is interesting. Let's hear your actually good business ideas that came from this okay. approach. Okay. So I'll caveat that. I don't know that these are good ideas, but they, I think, show you the types of things you can find. So I, I chose things that were relevant to me. The first one is someone said, someone please build, take a picture of my bookshelf, convert the titles into a spreadsheet, share the list with my friends, let my friends nearby check out books from my library. And I don't know if this would be like a good business, but I think it pointed to something that I personally find interesting, which is this person has books and they seem to want to share them with friends and or don't like actually give them to friends. I, I don't know what they mean by library. Maybe they just actually give them away or something like that. But I mean, how amazing would it be now we're in San Francisco? We know a lot of people. We could go to a library. I've been going to use bookstores. I sometimes buy new books online. But if all of my friends, I'm sure we have like, the titles that we want to read, right? Like people read similar types of books. They probably have things that I may discover down the road. And yet our books just sit on our bookshelves, like looking nice, but not getting to other people who may enjoy them as well. And I'd love to share books with friends and actually often do carry around books and give them away to friends who might benefit from them. So I don't know that it's a business, but I like the idea and the sentiment. And it just speaks to, um, you know, something that people want to do. And actually, one of the ways that my website gets a lot of traffic is my book reviews. And lots of people search for like man search for meaning summary, or Mm -hmm. uh, atomic habits summary, or whatever these popular books, and they come to my site, and they find my notes from them. And you can just see that there's a general interest in people uh, connecting over books and ideas. And I think it's another way to tap into that. Yeah, to your point, the three or so ideas that I surfaced from this exercise I don't know if I actually love the core idea, but each of them tells you about something a little more fundamental about what people are looking for, whether it's for productivity or connection or something else. So 
the one that I surfaced that had the most likes, it had 3,700 likes, is from this girl, Gabby. And she said, I bookmark a tweet almost every time I go in Twitter, yet I rarely actually go into my bookmarks and catch up on the content I saved. Request for product, programmatically deliver bookmarked content back into my feed until I check a box to verify I've read or watched the content. And so again, I don't know if I actually love that mechanic or that being a product per se, but something I feel and I think a lot of people feel is just this need to collect things digitally. And we've even talked about this concept of being like a digital hoarder. And ultimately, you just end up saving emails and your Evernote or your Roam or your Notion is just filled with all these things that you one day want to address. And so there's something about either things expiring or resurfacing to you in some actually pragmatic way that you can engage with them, but then also like file them away and just like go through all of the the mess that is your digital savings, I guess you could say. Yeah, I have this problem with tweets in particular, where it's either I want to remember something for the future, or I don't have time to engage with it in the moment. And then obviously, it disappears from your timeline. So I just post links in a couple of like categories I have in a personal archive. It's like health, book recommendations, whatever. And I go and post a link of the tweet there. But it's it's a really terrible way to actually access that information or utilize it in the future. And there's like, clearly, that would be helpful. Yeah. And there's probably new tools with AI advancing that can actually do this in a more strategic way for you. Other than I feel like a lot of the tools that exist are just like bookmarking things that you then have to go address later. It's it's more of a weight than actually something that helps you. Well, there actually is a product that you're familiar with as well called Readwise, and you import all the highlights from articles you've read online or your Kindle books, mm-hmm. and they will deliver the highlights or notes that you've made via an email on whatever cadence you want. And you can actually like study them like flashcards and Mm. have them resurfaced on some regular cadence. And you can also make them disappear as well. Yeah, I could see that going even further, though, where an AI could actually organize all of your information, like you said, tweets, but then also maybe it's multimodal where I'm able to listen to things instead of read them. And then it also files information into something that's actionable, like maybe I want to create a list that I share in a newsletter about all the most interesting things that I viewed that week. If it's actually able to act more like an EA for you or a VA versus just, again, something that surfaces something that then you still have to go and read and act on. But to that end, another request for product that came up in my search was one from 2021. And it was from Ryan Hoover, the founder of Product Hunt. And he wrote, that he was looking for a GPT-powered tool that converts 10 plus years of tweets and blog posts into a book. But since this was in 2021, GPT-3 was not nearly as strong as what we now have today. And so it's also interesting to go back into the archives of some of these requests for products and see what was not possible at a certain point in time that now like that actually sounds like a very possible product for someone to build, especially for people who want to write a book or create something that they just don't have the time for. Yeah, I mean, I can't wait to look back 20 years from now and see this tweet, business idea, a quality airline, and see that it's <laughs> still not realized. Still pending. <laughs> the final one I'll just quickly share is one from this woman, Allison, who said, She's looking for a timer that layers over apps as you open them to display in real time how long you've had an app open to prevent mindless scrolling. And this one I actually think is a good idea 
because there's all of these things like freedom or there's uh, different settings you can do on your phone that say, okay, you can only spend 30 minutes on Instagram, but I want like a live timer calling me out so that I, in theory, can police myself if I'm just reminded, oh my gosh, you've been on here for 15 minutes. You've been on here for an hour plus. Like I need this for chess.com to just like truly troll me as I'm wasting time. I think you need this for many uh, sites and apps. <laughs> and in fact, I would love to get a feed of your live timers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, if that was an open product, that's a great idea because it's just like, again, shaming you into acting the way that you, in theory, want to act. It'd be pretty hilarious if they shared it with all of your friends. Like, obviously, you would opt into it. But I think that would be a catalyst for, yeah, improving your behavior so that you weren't so embarrassed. <laughs> I think that's the best idea that I discovered yeah, in this. That, that that one could help a lot of people. I have two more. The first is from a guy named Daniel Pearson. He said, please build Whoop for financial fitness. So Whoop is like a mm -hmm. health tracker that tracks your sleep and your exercise and all this stuff. And he said, don't show me my spending and expenses. Tell me if I'm red, yellow, green, and teach me what behaviors I have that correlate with success. And I think mm -hmm. this is somewhat interesting in that you have like, mint and some other tools that will like track your spending but they're like pretty budgeting based a lot of them will have like net worth trackers but they're not like reinforcing good behaviors like oh look you dollar cost averaged into the index this week you will get x more money in 40 years or hey look you reduced your spend on cosmetics like you said that you wanted to or hey look you're spending on a high quality food like you said you wanted to i actually think that it should include spending on things that you want to spend on because spending is an investment is a financial uh, fitness skill as well. So there's definitely something there around finances that I, I think that tool set is just really poor right now. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then the last one is there should be a genre of scholarly writing called mini book halfway between article and book somewhere in the 30 to 40 K word range. Why doesn't this exist? And I don't know, like some people have produced shorter books, but I think there's a big appetite for you hear this complaint a lot that some books could just be articles. And I would argue that like the book format, even if it's repetitive, helps solidify ideas. But there is definitely a market for shorter books. And the reason it doesn't exist is because publishers, traditional publishers have, you know, weird restrictions around how long a book has to be. Or I think there's something about the feeling of a book in your hand it needs to be like meaty enough. And there's these weird things. But at the end of the day, like many books could probably be cut in half and get the same message across. Mm -hmm. And you can do this when you self publish. But generally, there is some sort of middle ground, I would even argue that it's like a 20k word book, more like a Derek Siver style where they're really short and succinct, and just get the point across. Yeah, I agree. Oh, actually, <laughs> this I would I would classify as both a good and a bad idea. So it's business idea. Make all the classic chocolate bars, Mars, Double Decker, Twix, Hershey. Well, he doesn't say Hershey's, but I'm going to add Hershey's. But use great chocolate and uncompromising ingredients. So just remake them so that yeah, they're we, not low quality. Yeah. And I think this is a terrible idea in the sense that people like the taste of Hershey's and they don't really care that it's low quality. It's like some sort of childhood comfort or... I don't know, like there's something that they really like about the consistency of it. But I do think it is somewhat interesting if you could replicate, say, the Hershey taste with higher quality ingredients and make it somewhat better. I don't know if you can, though. It's like 
you know, you there are higher quality burger joints, but they may have a better burger. People still go to McDonald's, though. And it's not just because of it's cheaper, like they actually like the taste of the burger sometimes. So it's just an interesting idea. But I think it's flawed. And it's assumption that, you know, as to why people eat these chocolate bars or classic comforts. Well, I think it depends what you're trying to achieve, right? Like you're not going to build a mass market burger that's extremely high end, but there probably are places where, you know, they have one location or something and it's extremely successful because it's just the best burger in the world. Yeah, exactly. But then you're not doing Hershey's. So I don't know. There, there's something there, but also something not there. You Sorry, know what else friend. might be there? Chocolate burgers. Burgers oh with God. chocolate on them. There's that something there. The Hershey's McDonald's intersection that we've all been waiting for. That might be the worst <laughs> idea that I've ever heard. <laughs> you know what? Maybe I'll post it on Twitter and and we'll see. We'll see if we hit some validation there. All right. Let's move on to the next one. You want to do patent drop or you want to do the sci-fi bank? Let's do patent drop. Okay. So this one should be quick. But there are so many newsletters out there. You know, there's like newsletters about business and technology and finance and news. And there also are so many newsletters about extremely niche things. And one of the more niche newsletters I like is called Patent Drop. And what they do is they just go through these public patent filings and they surface the most interesting ones often by very large companies that are highly capitalized that probably know a thing or two about what is on the horizon, or at least they're willing to make a bet there financially. Because how much does it cost to file a patent? It's certainly not free. And it's I think it's like many thousands of dollars. In any case, quick trivia segment. Do you know which companies, let's just do the top three, which companies do you think filed the most U.S. patents in 2022? Microsoft, Apple, Pfizer. No. I'll give you the first two and see if you can guess the third. The first one was Samsung. The second one was IBM. The third one was... The U.S. government. Did you say the U.S. government? Yes. (laughs) Can the U.S. government file a patent? I don't know. Very meta. <laughs> um, okay. It's TSMC. The chip company. The chip company. There's one that's fifth that has been up there for a while, which I think often surprises people, which is Canon. The defunct camera company? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anyway, it's interesting to look at the different companies filing and also the newsletter patent drop. So both of us combed a few different patents. What came to mind for you? Well, I wouldn't say I come to anything. I read one newsletter and it was their <laughs> latest one. Something interesting came out of it. And so what I discovered, which is the only thing I could have discovered, is that Adobe filed a patent related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's a mm-hmm. DEI auditor. And I think the way it's described is they want to build a technology where they can scan photos of employees' faces and also do things like scan website photos and give the company a diversity score in different ways based on things like race, gender, and sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. And if you really dig into this idea, there's, I would say there's problems with implementation and many people would either agree or disagree that this is a good idea in the first place. But, you know, example, like 
How do you deal with people who have multiple races? What do you do with non-gender conforming people? It's not clear that you can actually do this from solely an image of a person. That said, we do know that there is like a big demand for more DEI uh, programs and efforts in the world, especially at big companies and successful companies. And so I think it's generally like an idea that actually someone else could build to give companies a diversity score. And they probably would pay for this in the same way that people are now paying to get rated based on their like climate score, which is an issue mm. that lots of people care about and, and including investors and other people who want to put money in the company. So I think it's just interesting from... It's interesting. It's interesting from an interesting perspective. <laughs> That's right. Or maybe it's not interesting or maybe you love it. Maybe you don't love it. I'm not really commenting on that. I think the most interesting thing about patent drop, even though I've only read half a newsletter <laughs> n equals 0.5 <laughs> is that not only does it show you what some companies are investing in but they're actually investing in in a way where they want to build some multi-year moat in the form mm. of a patent so it's these are ideas that they want to build some competitive advantage around where they have protection it's even a higher caliber ideas they could just go build this anyways without going and filing a patent yeah one of the reasons i like reading the newsletter is because you'll often see companies filing patents in places that are candidly a little surprising, right? Like Adobe's core competency is not DEI, but they're filing a patent there. And so you'll you'll often see that dynamic where a company will just be exploring a space. And again, these are very heavily capitalized companies. And so it's worth just pondering on like, why are they investing there? Is this something that is a larger trend that someone can participate in, even if they're not Adobe or Amazon or some of these very large companies? And so my idea that came from exploring more than one patent drop was Boeing filed a patent which predicts wear and tear in the air. So they were seeking a patent for a system that could use sensors to detect if certain parts were becoming faulty and um, basically a system, I don't know if it's always in the air, but that determines if a part needs to be replaced ahead of time. And in the same newsletter, interestingly enough, they had a bunch of other patents which kind of follow this dynamic of predictive sensors and software. So like NVIDIA wants to know if you have, quote, an unfair advantage in esports by actually doing like game cheating detection on based on mouse lifting. Tesla wants to know if you're using your seatbelt correctly. So they're designing this patent around like proper seatbelt usage detection. And I think for me, the interesting theme from these patents is really this concept that much of our world physically is turning into a digital environment, right? With sensors or technology, like even cars, self-driving cars is one version of the digital future, but even if they're not self-driving, they are increasingly digital, like these moving computers. And so I think there's just going to be this whole ecosystem around whether things can be hacked, but also using these now programmable objects to sense things and detect things. And I just think there's like a whole new interface around. It's like almost like Internet of Things 2.0. And you can see a lot of companies investing here, like Boeing, trying to detect if their very physical airplanes are going to have problems. 
You could also imagine a lot of these companies or public companies looking at these patent drops as an investor and being like, what are these companies investing in? And seeing that maybe before that appears in shareholder reports or other places and Mm -hmm. getting a sense for whether or not you agree with some of the areas where they're trying to build these patent-based moats. Which, by the way, if people like this kind of episode, there are tons of other tools that you can use to yeah, try to get some sort of advantage. And one of them is, I believe it's through CB Insights or maybe PitchBook, but they have these earnings call trackers, which basically surface specific terms or themes in earnings calls across many companies. And so you could see, for example, like when the supply chain issues were happening, supply chain was at this huge spike. You can see like things like chip shortage or things like ESG, you know, when that became a thing. So you can get a sense of the things that companies at that level, the public level, what they care about over time. So it takes some work to really see through the noise of the information and see like what really matters, but these tools exist. All right, let's move on to the sci-fi idea bank. Yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, this one's my favorite, I think. Uh, it was created by Packy McCormick. He runs a newsletter slash website called Not Boring. And what he basically did is he scraped this website. The website is called Tech Novelgy. Tech Novelgy? This is like Stratechery. It's like the worst name ever, but amazing site. And basically, it's this timeline starting all the way back to the 1600s of all of the ideas I think mostly related to technology that appeared in science fiction books. And all of these ideas are linked to a specific book with a specific author published on a specific date. And what's amazing about this website and what Packy subsequently did for this not boring sci-fi idea bank is he compiled them by date, but he also kind of linked each of these ideas to whether they have subsequently been built in the real world, and if so, when they were built. So you can kind of see these amazing relationships between like, okay, an idea was first published in a book in this year, and then it took X number of years for it to be built. And the reason that's fascinating is because I can probably guess that every single one of these ideas when they were first published because they're in science fiction, felt like science fiction and felt like the kind of thing that would never be built. They probably felt extremely outlandish. But if you actually look at his idea bank, many of these ideas were eventually built. And he has a bunch of stats on, for example, what percentage exists today. So total ideas, there's over 3,700. Of those, almost 1,000 exist. So around 26% have actually been built. And you can just see this evolution of you know how long it took. So just to give a couple examples that I really liked of things that have been built, like this idea for a knowledge engine was first written about in Gulliver's Travels in 1726. And then finally, I don't think they were the first company, but the first successful company to do this was Google in 1998, right? Like that's hundreds of years. And then there are other examples where it didn't take quite as long. So for example, this idea for, quote, a marine spider in 1894 in A Journey in Other Worlds, 
hydrofoils were created in around the 1960s. So that's like what, 60, 70 years. I have tons of other examples if you want to go through them, like robot surgeons or credit cards in 1888 and then appeared actually in 1950s or live news in 1889, which 24 hour live news coverage kind of started in the 80s. So that's like around 100 years. But the idea is that a lot of this stuff, again, it sounded like science fiction originally. And then a lot of it has come to be as technology has advanced and made it possible. Well, it didn't just sound like science fiction, actually was science fiction. Yeah. Um, And just zooming out for a second. So Packy created the Sci-Fi Idea Bank, and it was based on the website you called out Technology. But that that site was created by Bill Christensen. So I just want to give give that guy. Give him a shout out. And And we'll link to that, too. And what I think is cool about this is what Packy did is he saw this website, which looks really outdated, but has a lot of cool information. And then through some combination of like using uh, chat GPT and other AI tools, he built the database that you're talking about that is more usable, that people are engaging with, that is spreading this idea further. And it's just a cool use of like taking information that exists on the internet, repackaging it and sharing it more widely and then expanding upon it. I think people are actually adding their thoughts and updating the database because it's not perfect. It's just a an MVP. And to your point, he kind of added this data layer, which I don't think existed on the original site. And there's all these kind of fun tidbits, like he breaks things down by author. So you can see some of the most prolific authors like Isaac Asimov or Neil Stevenson or others that I haven't heard of, but apparently have dreamt up hundreds of ideas. And you can see like what percentage of each author's ideas have actually come to be. And it's interesting because there's people like Edmund Hamilton, who came up with 99 ideas, but only 9% actually exist today versus Asimov also came up with 99 ideas, according to his database. But instead, he has 39%. That actually exist, which is like a pretty stark difference. And it's almost like, I guess, maybe if you're familiar with the authors, I wonder if you could get a sense through their style, if one is just a little more grounded or not. Yeah. And I think this is an argument for if you read more modern sci-fi, like things that are coming out today, like this is where some of the ideas for the future will come from or that will showcase some of what the future has in store. And I think that's what I find most interesting about this project is basically Packy saying that sci-fi is some sort of like, you know, prediction ball for the potential future because dreaming up ideas is easier than actually implementing them in reality. And that's because the tech may not be here or the convergence of multiple types of technology may not be here to make things actually happen. Uh, But if you go into these novels, you can actually get a glimpse of what the future is. And maybe you find it horrifying. Maybe you find it exciting. But I think he's creating this as a way to create some optimism around technology. And I think that's just a pretty cool way to think about the world. It is. And it also makes you reflect on the relationship of sci-fi and the entrepreneurs in the world. Because to an extent, you can't build something if you can't imagine it. And these are effectively some of the Imagineers of the last couple centuries who, to your point, even if a technology didn't quite exist, put that seed of an idea into the collective world's minds. And so it's also a chicken or egg thing. Like, would some of these ideas be built had they not been written about and had they not been part of a story that infected many people's minds and inspired them to potentially build it? Like, I I think that's an underrated 
aspect of science fiction, even today, if you look at the way that people talk about certain technologies and whether they almost have a sinister tone to them, or if they have a very like optimistic, inspiring slant to them, I think a lot of that potentially comes from science fiction and the stories that all of our minds have been, you know, infected with sounds too negative, but really like we draw a lot of our inspiration, not just from science fiction, but from Hollywood and the way that we ultimately think the world works. Yeah. So go out and dream up ideas and write them. And maybe you actually create the future in that way. I totally agree. It's, it's hard to know chicken or egg what came first here, but it's, it's a very interesting way of thinking about where the world will move or how ideas come to life. Four quick ones I pulled from the database, which are ideas that are not yet implemented that I just found like somewhat interesting. One is a unique way of crossing a river without a boat or a bridge. This was written in 1846 in The World As It Shall Be. And I was thinking like, yeah, hell yeah, we need to be able to get across <laughs> rivers without a boat or a bridge. Like, why can't I walk on water yet? I mean, Jesus did it. Like, and that was a long time ago. Why aren't we able to do that? <laughs> the next is uh, from Jules Verne in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which was written in 1875, which is a device for hunting underwater, something that transfers a powerful electric charge to the prey. This mm. was kind of fascinating because mm. I got into free diving about a year ago. And there are people who they free dive and they take a spear gun uh, yeah. out there and, and they spearfish and they actually catch fish that way. But, you know, our ability to actually go underwater and I don't know, like <laughs> go hunting underwater, it's, it's, it could be like a fun thing for people to do. And that doesn't quite exist yet. You know, we don't have the, the toolkit outside of the spearfishing, I believe. The last two ideas, these ones I wrote down because they're, I think, close to happening. So one is written in 1879 by Edward Page Mitchell and the senator's daughter. It's one small tablet is a month's worth of food. So that's so, like a Soylent? Yeah. So it's kind of like Soylent where you get all of your food in one shake, except in this case, you just take one tablet and you have enough food for a month, which mm. some people would be like, but cooking and eating, it's the communal way. And that's how we form connection. And that's actually part of happiness. And other people would be like, that's great. I can be more efficient. And so I think there would be some demand and some resistance to this, but I could see a future in which that would happen in the next couple decades. Totally. And the, the final one is a robotic reporter. This is by Philip Dick in the zap gun from 1965. And so basically an autonomous interviewer. And I think mm. we're probably very close to this. I imagine, you know, people these days, they're trying to do gotcha journalism. What if you just talk to like a fully rational robot? who then could spin your story in a positive way, a negative way, whatever. I guess you have to deal with the actual publisher and how they use the content. Or you could imagine like an autonomous uh, or robotic therapist, someone who gets to know you and who isn't subject to the biases of like human therapists. I think some people would have some demand for that as well, or just, you know, a robotic friend. And those are clearly just not that far uh, from what we're seeing in, with the developments of AI. And so I think that prediction will will become true very soon. Oh, yeah. I've already heard of people who kind of use ChatGPT or other tools to vet bias. So, for example, you can ask ChatGPT to like, hey, take a look at this article. Give me both sides. Or like, can you debate this for me? Can you pick up on what bias might exist here? And things like that. So, yeah, I think you're right that a lot of that is is actually coming to fruition as we sit here. Oh my God. Anyways, <laughs> check out the database. It's pretty nifty. 
Well, first, I want to share a few super quick. There is one that's related to what you said. And in 1980, someone dreamt up an artificial butterfly. But I think that relates to some of the advancements in AI where people are actually starting to, you know, have like digital pets and much more sophisticated digital pets than like a Furby from back in the day. And with some of the intersecting innovation that is happening in hard and soft robotics, I think you actually could imagine some people will hate this the same way they hate the idea of a digital relationship or partner, but it's like, imagine like a digital dog or a robotic turtle, you know? <laughs> okay. Anyway, artificial butterfly, 1980. Another one that I liked from 1976, which I know we have the technology for, and I would love if someone built this. Maybe the economics just don't make sense, but it is a device that carries your bag for you at airports. Like you could just have one of the really nice rolly suitcases that a lot of people already have, but just have it follow you. That tech exists for sure. Yes, but haven't you heard the announcements that you cannot leave any baggage unmanned at any point in the airport? It must be reported. But that's actually, you could have it set where it can't be more than, you know, 10 feet away from you. And it starts know, beeping. So the airport's just a bunch of beeping and then everyone thinks that there's bombs and anyway. If there's any place that innovation goes to die, it's the airport. All right. The last one, um, which actually I think Packy called out in his article about why this sci-fi idea bank was created, is asteroid mining. And I think it's a really great example of where for many decades, if not over a century, this idea was not possible. It was originally written about according to the database in 1898, but this is finally something that people are actually working on. There are serious companies that are working on this concept, which does sound outworldly even today, this idea that we could mine asteroids in space. But I think it's a great example of why a database like this is worth current or future entrepreneurs just looking at and just getting inspired and asking the question, was this impossible until a certain point to which now we have technology that actually can make it newly possible? I'm also thinking that this is maybe useful in a somewhat sillier way for just like novelists who want to develop ideas or people who want to find cool books that explore certain ideas. Like this database is a goldmine for that. You don't have to just take recommendations from people. You can be like, oh, this is a cool future. I really like this idea. Let me go read the book about it. Exactly. All right. Should we move on to the last? last oh, one? yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. So this one is a little different. We're kind of zooming out even further to the world's unsolved questions. They live on a Wikipedia page that we'll link in the show notes, and they're broken down by different industries. So chemistry, medicine, mathematics, information theory, economics, philosophy, it goes on for much longer. And this is just like the rabbit hole of rabbit holes, because again, it's all the things that 100 billion plus people who have lived on this earth have just not been able to figure out yet. And I can guarantee that some cohort of these problems in 100 years will have been solved. So there's, I think, some opportunity here if you really want to dedicate your life to something that is truly new. And so just to give an example here, one of the things in the 
unsolved questions in biology was protein folding. And it's not to say that we've solved the folding code or the folding mechanism, but some of the advancements in AI and where companies like DeepMind are releasing AlphaFold, that is actually a problem that is becoming more tractable, or at least we understand it more. So with that said, should we just share a few of the unsolved questions that caught our eye? Sure. All right, Cal, what'd you find? Well, 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 what did I find? So I think what I found in this source is not a goldmine for business ideas, but really two things. So one is it's a good source for new research and dissertations. So a lot of these are like academically focused things. And you'll see Mm -hmm. that in the couple examples I surface. And I I thought like, oh, if you want to go be a PhD student, this might be a great place to see where you can actually have the most impact in your in your field, or at least a broad overview of the unsolved problems. And the second thing on that note is I found it to be a good source of humility. And specifically in the examples I'll share, I'm surprised that we don't know the answers to these things because they're the types of things where I think people would be like, oh yeah, we understand that for sure. And they would just say that kind of arrogantly without knowing that it's just a totally unsolved problem. And so the two that I surfaced, one was in neuroscience and it's basically like, what is consciousness is one of the big questions of neuroscience that you hear people in like the meditation space talk about as well. Like what is the neural basis of subjective experience, cognition, wakefulness, alertness, arousal, attention, you know, what is death and what are near death experiences? How do those work neurally? And I think this is an example of something that people kind of assume they say things like, oh, AI is conscious. Yet we don't even know what forms human consciousness, how to identify it, how to even define it. Mm-hmm. And it's one of these uh, problems that you hear a lot of philosophers talk about. And the second one is about biology. So uh, the quick snippet is the origin of life, exactly how, where, and when did life on earth originate and which of the many hypotheses are correct. And it has some more detail there, but that's one where I think people would be like, oh yeah, we for sure know like where life originated, how it happened, how long humans have been around. And I, I think that just seeing that there is like, oh yeah, these are just hypotheses and our grasp of that is probably not as clear as we feel it is. And maybe it helps for your sanity to just assume that we know things and the things that you hear are correct. But at the end of the day, like we're still kind of guessing about how all of this came to be. And people have different theories. This integrates religion as well and science. And there's the inherent tension there at times. But I think that's interesting. And, and for me, it was more like, oh, these are cool places to research and also humble yourself about how limited our knowledge of just basic things in life, including what we are and where we came from are. I totally agree. I think going through these unsolved questions also kind of shakes your reality. Like one of the ones that I picked up on here and I've been following a little bit since I interviewed that Nobel laureate is just dark matter. And it's just something that scientists don't understand, but also they don't understand how it reconciles with Newtonian mechanics and things like gravity. And the concept of gravity and like Newton's mechanics are things that were taught, you know, in, in school and that govern the way we understand the things around us and how they work. And so the fact that that actually could be maybe not, not true, but could be modified or it doesn't fully reconcile with everything we know about the world is at the very least interesting. It's like, 
there's just still so much that we don't understand to your point about the human body, but also the things around us. Another example of that, that I picked up on was just this question of why biological aging occurs. It's something that scientists are learning more about, but we just like, we, we don't actually understand why we age as creatures. Yeah. And this one is super important for, I would say the space that we're in. There's a lot of people who are, you know, somewhat obsessed with longevity and taking supplements and believing in certain cult books, like why we sleep or Peter Atia's new book. And you just have this cast of characters who is talking about longevity in sometimes a humble way, sometimes an overly authoritative way. And I don't know when it comes to like putting things in your body or like the reasons why we age and all of that. I think it's important to remember that we don't understand those things because a lot of the theories are based on some sort of new understanding of them. And I think the common one that I've heard more recently is that aging is a disease that can be solved. And it often occurs because of like DNA replication errors that compound over time. And if you just stop those or reverse them, then you could potentially live forever or stop aging. I'm probably screwing this up real big, but I've no, I think it, it roughly aligns to what it says here. It says there's a number of hypotheses as to why senescence occurs, including those that it is programmed by gene expression changes and that it is the accumulative damage of biological structures, particularly damage to DNA. Yeah. So that that's the one that roughly, like I would say I'm somewhat convinced of just because of the sources I've read, but also it's not like a firm belief because I don't know, like this is all really new research. That said, it's interesting from the perspective of seeing it not just as an inevitability, death and mm -hmm. aging, but as something that you could potentially cure. And I think if you put your guards down about whether that's a good or a bad thing, then you get to this these questions that people are trying to answer and the people hundreds of years from now will benefit from the answers that we either got right or got wrong and all the little experiments we ran in between. Yes. To close this chapter out, I'll share three more that surprised me. They all relate to the human body. But did you know that there has been a decline in average human body temperature since the 19th century? No, and I'm already spooked out. <laughs> Medical data suggests that the average body temperature has declined 0.6 degrees Celsius since the 19th century. The cause is unclear, although it has been suggested that there is some relation with reduced inflammation from reduced exposure to microorganisms. This is starting to get way above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> okay, two more quick ones. Handedness. It is unclear how handedness develops, what purpose it serves, why right-handedness is far more common, and why left-handedness even exists. Shout out to all my lefties out there. <laughs> <laughs> Final one. Photic sneeze effect. What causes the photic sneeze effect? And why is it so common, yet not universal? Do you know what this sneeze effect is? No. All right. It is basically probably something you've seen in action because the condition affects 18 to 35% of the world's population. And it's basically a condition that causes sneezing in response to numerous stimuli, such as looking at bright lights. You know how this happens to some people? No. <laughs> they like need to sneeze and then they'll be like, okay, let me just look at a light. And then they just sneeze. And some people, I guess it, they, they sneeze a lot. And there's other examples where some people sneeze after eating. Um, 
anyway, there's this thing where apparently 18 to 35% of the world's population has this strange sneeze reflex and the world, we do not know the cause for this. So many questions, so few answers. <laughs> so little time. Uh, anyway, okay, so we've kind of, we went through four different examples. We went through different queries that you can enter into Twitter. We went through this patent drop newsletter, the sci-fi idea bank, and then finally Wikipedia's list of unsolved questions. Cal, what was your favorite? Which of these do you think you might actually return to and spend some time with? Hmm. Hmm. I think I'm actually most interested in the sci-fi idea bank. And I just want to go through the list and just see the things that people dreamed up. I just also, I find it to be a cool use of data on the internet. And, you know, Packy's website is called Not Boring. And I would argue that this is a not boring thing to have spent a weekend <laughs> on. It's cool. And I he's open source parts of it where he has like a sheet where you can comment and modify it. And I, I think if you release the collective power of the internet on something like this, like probably good things will come out of it. And so that's the one, I don't know if I'll use it, but I'm most impressed by it. And I find it to be, yeah, just really cool. Nice. And what about you, Mike? I think I agree. I think I've spent some time with this database and I just want to keep digging. And I see so many wonderful things that were dreamt up so long ago. Like one of the very best things we've bought in the last couple of years was our electric bicycle. And those were dreamt up in 1897, according to this database. So a long time ago. And I just think there's, there's this essence that I believe in more deeply with time, which is just optimism around what can be built and how much opportunity there is. And that's why we call this segment opportunity is everywhere. And I think of all the resources, if we want to call them that the four that we shared today, that one screams optimism to me, even though a lot of people think of sci-fi as this doomer concept or, or approach to writing. I think sci-fi is actually like really optimistic. All right. Should we end it there? Yes. And I guess we should note that we are going to do an additional episode coming up, which aligns with this idea of opportunities everywhere. But in that episode, we're going to come with a few ideas and then we're going to roast each other's ideas. So another take on this format. So tune in for that. I'm lacing up my gloves right now, ready to take down those ideas. You're not holding any punches back. You're going for it. You're really going to roast my ideas, aren't you? Intellectual punches. Here we come. All right, we'll include all of the resources in the show notes if you made it this far. Thanks for listening. Till next time.